Fishing like a local isn't just about catching fish. It's about connecting with the environment and the people who call it home. It's about hearing the stories and traditions that have been passed down for generations and sharing unforgettable moments with the people you meet along the way. Fishing like a local is having an experience that stays with you forever. And with Fishing Booker, you can experience it too, no matter where you are. Discover your next adventure on Fishing Booker. This upcoming concert season will be all about the boots, and Tecovis is your stop for the best in Western style. Tecovis has seasonal and limited edition offerings this spring and summer, including men's and women's boots, apparel, hats, bags, and more. All Tecovis boots are made by hand in a time-honored tradition with timeless styles that are always on trend. And Tecovis has first wear comfort with little to no break-in period. It's hard to find this level of comfort paired with this level of style. Stop by your local Tacova store, have a complimentary drink or two, that's WCB style, and shop new styles. The smell of fresh leather and friendly staff are at your service. Many stores even have leather custom branding to make your boots truly personalized. And with regular live music and events, there's no in-store experience like it. If you can't make it into a store, just visit tecovas.com. That's T-E-C-O-V-A-S.com. They offer free shipping on all boots, as well as free returns and exchanges, and ship right to your door. Go to tecovis.com and find your new favorite pair of boots today. Well, this sucks. that because that was always a hot topic when i was up there fishing yeah i, I hit that one because meat eater put an article out on it that they didn't like so oh did they yeah so. yeah i uh it's funny i i read a i read a post saying that the hunter conservation or the hunter conservationist is a better po- is a better podcast than the than the mediator and i loved it oh really where was that <laughs> it was on my phone it was on a was it instagram yeah, it was on an instagram post and i was driving oh that's out. funny yeah i was I uh, actually i actually said that in like two episodes ago oh did you okay. yeah like the guest we had on i i said um uh because she actually approached us said hey i was listening to your episode with the trappers and you're talking about alberta trappers association working on this caribou project well it's like i was running that project i'd really like to come on and talk about it so she did and she like laid out a bunch of things that she wanted to talk about and it was she did a really good job like pitching to come on the show yeah um and so anyway she, she had a really neat kind of statement about this sort of like the the challenges of like trying to bring like government and industry and hunters and like all these people together and so i said in the episode hey i just as we're getting started i just said i want to go back to something that you said to me when you wrote in in your email and uh i so i'll just read it out here the hunter conservationist podcast is much better than meat eater (laughs) And, and it was like so maybe that's where the quote come from is because i said it no yeah no i uh but it was, I don't, it was a yeah, wasn't, wasn't real. Well, you know, I, I don't like myself personally. I don't, I don't really tune into the, the meter to podcast. So, I mean, I used to listen to him lots when I, when I got into, uh, well, when they first came out, I was listening to Ronella's stuff, but not, uh, not lately, but, uh, no, you, you got, uh, 
you got a great show going on. Uh, I really enjoy what you've gone to. I, there is definitely some episode I have to catch up on. So, but how long, uh, how long you been doing this for? We will be coming up on three years this summer. Yeah. Wow. Okay. Well, I think, uh, yeah, let's just get rolling here. So, sure. Um, uh, you've been doing it for three years. Um, three years in August. No, three years. July 1st, actually. Oh yeah. Nice. Nice. So awesome. So how did you get into, so for the people who, who uh, who are listening here, I'm, I'm talking to Mark Hall. Um, Mark Hall, if you're not familiar with him, he's got uh, he's got the Hunter Conservationist podcast. Now you have a few other things on the go, isn't that right, Mark? In terms of we, podcasts, or is we it do. Just- so, so the flagship is Curtis and I host the Hunter Conservationist podcast. Then I run a so that's twice a month. Pretty pretty rigid on on releasing there. Then I have another one called the Round Canada podcast. Uh, which is usually usually just me, and it's it's uh, kind of comes out maybe once a month, um, and it's it's kind of where I go through like trending stories on wildlife science, conservation, and responsible or irresponsible hunting, and uh, from across Canada. So it's just kind of the recap of what's going on, and you know, and anywhere from twenty minutes to an hour, give people kind of a snapshot of what's going on in the country because you know everybody can't read all the stuff in their feeds. And then Curtis and I have a membership-based podcast called the Hunters Underground Podcast, and it's on Patreon.com. And so for like five bucks a month, you join and uh, we spit out a couple of podcasts, just Curtis and I chatting about whatever, analyzing things, films, articles, uh, chatting about hunting, just whatever. Yeah. And that's, that's Curtis Hall. He's your, he's your son, right? You betcha. Yep. Yeah. That's pretty cool. Yeah. It's got to keep you pretty busy. That many, that many. It is actually. It, it is. Um, I'm, I'm, I was looking at, we use the Squadcast platform for recording and bringing our guests on. And, and I was like, man, I'm totally getting the warning signals from my account at five hours maxed out every month of recordings. Oh, yeah. So now I'm, I'm looking at bumping that up to 12. Yeah, <laughs> so, yeah. Not that I'm going to do 12 hours of podcast, but it's like, I just need a little bit more time. Yeah. To, yeah. Just a learn. little bit, just in case. You never know. That happened to us last night. <laughs> we got uh, half an hour in and I signed in with uh, the wrong account and uh, the, the session timed out through Zoom. So we had to. <laughs> oh, I, I had it once where it went, you've got 10 minutes left. Do you want to pay more minutes? And I'm like, shit, no, I'm going to wrap this up real fast. <laughs> Thanks for coming on the show. We'll see you in the next episode. Yeah, no doubt. So maybe Mark, maybe you could talk just a little bit about your background and, and, you know, um, how you got into, you know, well, obviously I I imagine you've probably been involved in hunting your whole life, but just how you got into vault into like this side of, of hunting, you know what I mean? Being you're pretty, you're pretty active and you're a great spokesman and you're very educated on all these issues. So how did you like talk a little bit about your background if you could? Sure. I mean, I was born on christmas eve (laughs) (laughs) that's true that's a christmas eve christmas eve 1966 yep uh my very first possession uh i ever had in life was a toy hunting rifle that my grandfather brought to me at the hospital in cranbrook on christmas morning so but it's uh so so yeah i'm like third generation hunting and trapping family uh, in british columbia 
my dad was a hunter. Um, everybody, the Hall family was was quite big <clears throat> on on my dad's side, and they were all hunting. Like like Hall H stood for Halls, hockey, and hunting, and it was just kind of like that's all you ever talked about, and yeah. that's all you ever you ever did. Um, so it, but it's kind of interesting growing up as a kid, like nature and animals were my passion. Um, and I had a tremendous regard and level of empathy for all things living as a kid. Uh, I wasn't the kid that went around and like shot things with the BB gun or whatever. I was the kid that was like, had my dad's tools and I was out back behind our house by the government warehouse and I'm like chiseling their pavement, big chunks out of their pavement, because there was a tr- little tree trying to grow up through the pavement oh. along the edge of the building. And I'm like, well, this tree's going to die. So I chiseled a big hole out and dug it out and transplanted it. And yeah, oh, it's yeah. like 30 feet high now or wherever it's planted property got sold or whatever. But so my family actually thought he's never going to be able, he's never going to be a hunter. Like he just cares, like he's got too much empathy and stuff for, for animals. But I did, I, I became a hunter and um, more recently just a trapper, both my dad and my grandfather trapped and stuff. So I grew up with it. Um, I actually wanted to become a wildlife biologist when I finished school. And I graduated in 1984 from Smither Senior Secondary School. And uh, I, I really wanted to be a wildlife biologist. Like that was my passion. And I went and met with one of the government biologists in Smithers. And um, he was saying like, if you want to become a wildlife biologist, I really recommend <clears throat> like getting your bachelor's, your master's and potentially even thinking about your PhD. Uh, it's a very competitive field. And at that time, you know, there was, he said, the only jobs that would be available would be to work for government. So it's like few jobs, a lot of competition, you better go the distance with your education. And I was still in grade 12. And I was like, holy shit, man, it's like, I don't want to go to school for that much. But this fellow said to me, he said, um, he, he said, but I'll tell you something. He said, a wildlife biologist has jurisdiction over the animals themselves to manage the wildlife. But a forester has legal jurisdiction over the wildlife's habitat. And a forester can have more impact on wildlife, positive or negative, in a single day in his or her career than a wildlife biologist might be able to have over their entire career. And so I went into forestry, got a degree in forestry, followed up with a master's in environment management. But I did a tremendous amount of my career working in on, on wildlife projects, wildlife habitat projects, restoration, assessing, you know, sheep winter range and, you know, doing doing that, that type of stuff and uh, spent most of my career working for myself and then I've had experiences working in the mining sector in forestry, in um, oil and gas up north. So, you know, the conversations we've all been having about the cumulative impacts um, in northeastern BC. Uh, Unfortunately, I was part of that for a few years, you know, that industry uh, exploring for, for shale gas reserves up there. But I also firsthand kind of saw the, the impacts to the land up there. I'm quite familiar with what you know the court decision was talking about. I've seen it seen it firsthand. So yeah. I spent my whole life in the natural resource 
management sector and hunting and my career secondary and my passion is this stuff. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that, uh, that kind of definitely, uh, explains a lot, at least, at least, uh, for me, because I know, you know, I, again, you know, I've listened to a lot of the stuff you got going on and you have a, a great reputation for just being very well educated and all this stuff. So that definitely, uh, puts the dots together myself. I, you know, I, I wish I would have been a little bit more involved when I was younger myself. I'm 43. I was born in 78. So, I mean, obviously I, I grew up in the outdoors living in Prince Rupert, not far from Smithers. Um, mm. uh, but I just never, never paid attention enough to the wildlife aspect of it. Like obviously hunting and fishing was huge, even, you know, up till, you know, a couple of years ago. So, um, yeah, cool. So you've yeah, kind of got in- a, I've kind of got a, like a, really important person in my life that kind of set a bar that's really my driver for trying to make a difference for hunting and trapping yeah. and fishing and wildlife in this province and that was my grandfather oh, yeah. um, my grandfather had this passion for wildlife talked about it every second every moment he was in the forestry office he was in the wildlife branch office always talking about something for wildlife and wildlife habitat and he actually back in the 1970s, approached the MLA, Terry Segerty, in East, the East Kootenai riding and said, hey, we need more money for wildlife management, wildlife projects on the ground. Here's this idea. Let's take a tax off the natural resource industries and put it into a special fund that just used to manage wildlife habitat. And a few other people got involved kind of in that conversation. They f- they flew it through Victoria uh, and there kind of wasn't the appetite in the seventies to kind of like put a resource tax on like the forest industry and the mining industry, some back and forth pursued long story short, they landed on a surcharge that is on our hunting, fishing guide outfitter and trappers license and a fund that's now called the habitat conservation trust foundation. And my grandfather was one of about four men, along with MLA Terry Segerty, that that were the architects of that. And um, I hold that pretty near to my heart um, because of his love for that. And that that is a big driver of my education, my advocacy, and just standing up for hunting. Yeah, that's pretty cool. Yeah, no doubt. Yeah, that I, I when you were telling me that, I thought maybe you were going to say, um, it was going to be something like the Pittman, Pittman Robertson Act, but it got shut down, which would be, which wouldn't yeah. surprise me. I mean, like, I, I wonder it, it if it was sort of that idea. Yeah. Um, yeah. But Just yeah, that. it was, there wasn't much, much of an appetite to, uh, to take. Yeah. What do you like, think? Fortunate. Of, sorry, go ahead, Pete. I was going to say, I even like the idea, like, kind of going on that there, like, that those kind of, you know, a portion coming off, off those sorts of things where we've talked about before. Uh, down in different states, you know, like, I don't know if it's that, uh, you named it before, uh, like it, a, you're a talking sporting, about like, a sporting yeah. goods tax, you know, if it's like on hunting gear or fishing gear, you know, yeah. well, there, there's tax. two different, yeah, there's two different, there's the Pittman Roberts and Dingle Johnson. The Pittman Roberts is, is 11% and, um, the Dingle Johnson is 10%. So there's, yeah, there's so, two different things that they got going so, on down there. So the PNR DJ acts, yeah. So the Pittman Roberts is on firearms and ammunition sales in the United States. And then it's states apply to the federal fund because it's a federal excise tax. 
uh, and then it's proportionally dispersed back to projects at the state level, kind of based on where the sales came from. Dingle Johnson is on um, fishing gear, motorboats, marine fuel, uh, those sorts of things, and it's and it aimed more at the fisheries and aquatic sort of things. But uh, it's it's big. Like two of those together, I think are you know, always around a billion dollars a year yep. in the United States. And it's population based. I mean, if, oh, if yeah. you took in British Columbia, if you took all the fees, all the hunting license and all the tag revenue and put it into Habitat Conservation Trust Foundation, we would never touch the numbers like that even like a little tiny state like Idaho, you know, yeah. generates with a fraction yeah. number of people because they got more hunters, oh, um, yeah. per, you know, per capita kind of thing. So but where our wealth is, is in our natural resources. And, you know, you've had the conversations, we've had it, uh, you know, so many of these conflicts, uh, you know, in hunting and fishing sort of always point back to how the land is managed mm -hmm. and unsustainable resource extraction and impacts on the lands and roads everywhere and access everywhere and mines and water quality and all this kind of, kind of stuff. And it's like, but that's where the money can come from to, to fix all of it. And, yeah. And, and it's a tough subject. I know, you know, like, yeah, there, there's 300, there's 10 times the amount of people down in the States. And even like hunters, like John, um, John Stallone and I were talking, we were comparing numbers of hunters. I mean, there, you look at 1 million hunters in Canada compared to over, you know, over 15 million there. We just don't have, we just don't have the numbers. And when it comes to those Pittman Roberts enacts, it goes for like outdoor equipment. So like hikers, you know people just enjoying recreating the outdoors and like you mentioned at that level it's a it's a numbers game it's a population game yeah we just don't have it so. it's you know but it there was the ontario federation of anglers and hunters um i think published or commissioned or were part of a commissioned report uh, that was released, I think about two years ago, just prior to COVID, that was like a summary of hunting, fishing, trapping, uh, revenue by province, you know, for all of Canada. Mm -hmm. And some of those numbers are pretty big, you know, contributions to the GDP and those sorts of things. They're, pr they're pretty big numbers. Yeah. Like in British Columbia, the provincial taxes that are collected strictly off of hunter spending I think was about 375 million. It's yeah. 10 times what we spend on wildlife management in this province. We actually Crazy. generate, even though we've only got 110,000 resident hunters in the province, we generate that much through our spending. Yeah, there's probably a big chunk of that coming from me. So uh <laughs> I, I know me, me too. I I'm I'm the other half of that. So yeah. <laughs> honey, I'm just doing my part to yeah. support the economy and keep the yeah. schools open. Yeah. I just, It'd be It'd be, I don't know. Yeah. I mean, that's obviously, I've had this conversation with uh, a number of people before getting that money out. Like if I wish there was a, a tool or something we can use to get that money, like more of that money allocated back into, into the wildlife of this province. But again, that, you know, that's something it's we have political to advocacy. Yeah. It, it's just, it, it's keeping the, it's keeping the, the money that's spent on looking after the land fish water wildlife mm -hmm. habitat the money that's spent on that as you guys have probably seen this from jesse and the bc wildlife federation how it's like it's going down you know like back in the 60s i think you know it was like 0.6 percent of the provincial budget was allocated to the natural resource industries to manage the natural resources 
And 40 years later, it's like 0.04% or something like every successive government for the last um, 30 or 40 years is consistently like giving less and less and less to the dirt ministries uh, and increasing the budgets in every other sector in the province. So, um, you know, to reverse that, we've got to keep the focus on there needs to be more money put back into managing this resource. Otherwise, we're seeing what we're seeing, dwindling populations, impacts to the land that aren't being fixed and conflict over who gets what of a shrinking pie. That is a recipe for disaster. It's what Jesse that's calls kinda, managing to zero, right? Yeah, that's kind of what we have going on now, a bit of that, right? So, Oh, absolutely. Yeah, it, it, it's a, absolutely like the whole moose and caribou thing up north is, is you know, to some degree, um, you know, related to the resource extraction industry and in some cases, you know, due to scarcity. Um, so if you think about the level of advocacy that's happened on that hunting regulation in the last few weeks, it's we have to be able to sustain that year after year on all of our elected officials when it comes to telling them we need more to manage supernatural British Columbia. Yeah, yeah, for sure. And so, I, I think I think we need to, as resident hunters, we need to take the onus upon ourselves and we need to be more engaged and keep the pressure on. Like even before this, after this, we all, you know what I mean? Like putting that pressure on our elected officials to say, hey, we need more spending. We need more spending. Don't just wait till something's on the table or proposed to be taken away and then start, you know, putting your two cents and kind of just doing doing it all the time. Do it once a month, right? Just writing a letter. If you already have the email yep. address, you already have the the physical address just send another letter away right just that's i think one of the big tipping points that i have seen with this moose and caribou regulation controversy in 7b has been the change of a couple of key groups down in the u.s getting on board um so robbie kroger at blood origins kind of like started to champion this concept of getting hunters united and together and educated and informed and aware of hunting issues globally. And I don't really know anybody that kind of is plugged into like sort of the global issues. I track stuff, but it's like, I don't even touch the African stuff because it's like, man, I just, I don't know. I just, I'll learn. Uh, yeah. He knows, you know, he's, right. he's from there. Um, so, he, you know, he started to really focus on, you know, like, hey, people, um, this is hunting. We're all hunters. Here's this thing going on in Australia. They're trying to ban duck hunting. They're trying to, you know, ban, you know, gross hunting in the moors of, you know, England and this sort of stuff. And, and, he, and he started bringing this awareness and this education and the truth about hunting. And then more recently, um, the howl for wildlife have, yeah. has kind of stepped in sort of doing the same, same thing, but they've, they've complemented that, that awareness of hunting issues globally to rallying people behind some of the technology that they brought to the table being these call centers. And they picked yeah. up on the issues here in British Columbia and literally like thousands of messages were going to elected officials yeah. across British Columbia, because of them getting involved in an advocacy campaign. And, and that's, in my mind, has been a real 
game changer here in the last, like literally like in the last month. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Because yeah, well. I'm seeing Americans wanting to be educated and understand issues that are happening here in Canada mm-hmm. and then saying, okay, now that we understand it, what can we do to help? Yeah. Yeah. And it goes both ways too. And I've had guys on this podcast that I've met through and become good friends with, talk to them, you know, almost on a daily basis. And they keep me up to speed on what's going on down, you know, like when, uh, with the Washington bear hunts, one example. Right. And yeah, that how for wildlife that, yeah. I mean, I can't say enough about, about those guys there. They're just, they're really yeah. advocating for unity within the hunting community, which is, which is really good because that's one thing about hunting i mean that's one thing that makes hunting great and and we all love it is because it's it's unique and everybody has their own little you know their own little has their own little world inside the hunting realm right inside the hunting universe and but you know if like it's going to be either a crux or a strength so um the way they've done it it pulled it all together for us Like I said, I kind of see that as a tipping point, you know, here in BC, because we've all connected Mm -hmm. across the border, um, you know, with these people, with, uh, with, with a broader interest in hunting uh, globally in North America and a willingness to learn and support um, advocacy campaigns here in Canada. And so you know, our ability to collaborate with them and put this whole issue of um, how much money is given back to the ministries to manage wildlife in the province of British Columbia needs to be a constant thing that we work with them to get an advocacy campaign out. Here's the call center, get a hold of your, you know, your MLAs, plug your information in and it'll send out 85 messages saying, Hey, you know, and, and, and we can time that we can time that when there's like, like part like budget times mm-hmm. coming up and the, um, the standing committee on finance, when you make presentations, like we got to start, you know, picking the right time and pushing that agenda. And I yeah. think their ability to help us uh, with that. And the fact that they're interested in that would, um, would be huge. I do see it as as a game changer, what's what's yeah. happened with this movie? Yeah, thing. me too. Yeah, me I think too, some of the sure. best things when I went on to uh, when you were talking with uh, Hall for Wildlife there, I went on and I was like, well, I'll check this out. And I know probably two best things. Um, the first one was how easy they've made it. Mm. It was it was something else. It was just you went in there and it was it was so simple to sign up. Just put your info in. You're kept up to date on anything new coming up. You know, it just goes to your email and everything. You get a little update on something that's happening somewhere else. And then when you start reading about how they send their letters out to the MLAs, it's not the same letter for everybody. You know, they, they switch the letters up. It, it actually has your email address. So it's not like, oh, Focus Hunting has sent us 2,500 emails <laughs> in the last hour <laughs> yeah. and a half. Yeah. Um, we'll just delete all those. But when it's consistent, like, it seems like they've really figured it out and I'm sure they're fine tuning it to, you know, as they go along and everything, but it's crazy the traction they're getting. And I think, yeah. That's and, they, and they haven't been going that long either. So, yeah, I mean, it's, it's, it's only going to evolve and it's only going to get bigger and, and hopefully they keep gaining support because uh, it, it's, it could be like, like Mark said, it's, it, it's already a game changer, but I mean, it could be, it could be what we need. Uh, yeah. Yeah. You know, and it's it, the, the other part of this that I think is a bit of a game changer is 
you know, the, the impetus behind Curtis and I starting the Hunter Conservationist podcast is, is a, was a little bit born out of sort of this exact thing. And it started kind of around the grizzly bear debate and on social media and various platforms, like I saw hunters here from British Columbia reaching out to people in the States, directly reaching out to Stephen Ranella in uh, on Instagram or whatever, saying, we need some help up here. Like you came up here and you filmed a hunt. You were trying to get a grizzly bear in British Columbia. Now we're going to lose that hunt. Like we need your voice as a spokesperson for hunting. Right. And it was, it was met with silence. Like there yeah. just wasn't people that were, it's like, Oh, that's Canada. Like we'll go up there and hunt um, and then go back down and produce our films and do all our things and say, you know, here's the great American hunting experience, but we're not really that interested in, you know, your hunting opportunities, your regulations, your wildlife management, the history and conservation and all that. And I, I just, I felt bad for Canadians and I felt bad for British Columbians, like that there was nothing in Canada to like for them to say this is our vehicle to have these conversations and they care about it and you know and so we're that's why we got into it and just said yeah. let's get the conversation happening about Canada and cover Canadian stories and you know try to help and so but but it's it's different now it, it's a little different now they're getting they're getting involved in these things at the outset um, everybody down in the U S was covering the story when the grizzly bear hunt was banned in BC. And all of a sudden yeah. there was grizzly bear experts everywhere. And it's like, none of them got the information, right. I'm just like, Oh my God, you guys, it's like, don't cover the story unless you got the facts. And so, yeah. so but it's, it is, it's different now they're getting educated. And then they're saying, how can we, how can we support you? Hunting's hunting. Yeah. Yeah. That's great. It's funny. It's funny how that works you know, with like Ranella and those, you know, and, and he's not the only one. I mean, there's with this stuff going on now and with other stuff, he's kind of just met with silence, you know, the guys in the TV industry. And there's a, you know, there's a handful of guys that have, have a good reach in British Columbia. And, you know, I've right, re I've reached out to a few of them in the same thing, you know, regarding the seven B stuff, like, Hey, can you weigh in on this? Can you, can you be a, can you be a voice for, for BC resident hunters and not just BC resident hunters, but you know, just hunters in general and yeah, not even a reply. So yeah, it's just wow. interesting. Do you think they're worried about backlash and, you know, loss of, I don't know if I want to say revenue, but views or viewers for their shows or stuff, or why do you think that? Yeah, you know, I don't know. I mean, or... obviously, you know, when you're involved in, if that's your profession and, you know, if you're on TV, obviously everything's a little different, right? You know what I mean? Everything, obviously it's, it's, it's a lot different than it is for, you know, yourself or, or myself. It, I think there's that. two things when you're in the public, when you're a public figure, quote unquote, public figure, being involved in having a say and being in the middle of things that are controversial about hunting and wildlife management um, gains you a lot of traction and it helps you in your business and your platform and what you're doing or it could completely devastate you because right. you get, you know, you get into these things and they're, they're like pretty complicated and you stick your neck out getting involved and making a statement. And then everybody like jumps on you and it's wrong. And then you got to like go on and apologize and say, you didn't know. And, 
you know, yeah. and whatever, and you slap the host of the Oscars and then you got to <laughs> apologize for it afterwards. It's just sort of, so some people are like, some people, you know, I, I get it. Public figures are like, like, fuck it. I'm getting involved. Yeah, I'm just going to, exactly. I'm going to say things. Randy Newberg gets in the middle of stuff down in the States and he just says it, you know, he says what he says. Other people, they're very careful. Cause it's like, if you get tangled up in something, and you're like, it turns on you and, and, and your viewers turn on you going, how the hell, why could you stand for that? Or why did you say that? And then all of a sudden the sponsor's going, holy hell, what did you do? Right? Yeah, exactly. And so, so there's, there's the two types, the ones that just sort of don't care if their sponsors are going to leave, they're going to stand up for hunting and others that are just very careful about yeah. the PR and, you know, their public image and stuff. And yeah, that's true. And I think that just, it all depends on, on the personality himself for sure. Yeah, that's great. <laughs> so Pacific salmon treaty. Um, when I lived up in Prince Rupert, this was a big issue. Uh, I remember I commercial fished up there and the salmon fishermen always accused the Alaska government of taking too much fish. And it seems like it's going on again. I, I was reading through your, uh, your, your um, stories on, on Instagram, Mark, and I pulled a couple off there and I don't spend, uh, I don't, I don't follow the fishing stuff probably as much as I need to. I kind of focus more on the, on the hunting stuff, but uh, maybe you could just do give a little recap of what's going on there. So there was, there were two groups um, that were commissioned uh, or let's see, I'm just looking at the report here. So a recent report commissioned by Skeena Wild Conservation Trust and Watershed Watch Salmon Society revealed that Southeast Alaska commercial fisheries are catching huge numbers of salmon. Um, so, okay, so Skeena Wild Conservation Trust and Watershed Watch Salmon Society, both here in British Columbia, um, commissioned a report to look into the harvest of salmon stocks by the Alaskan fisheries and then produced a report that basically sort of laid out how shocking, you know, the, the volume of fish that were being taken, um, fish that were leaving Alaska waters bound for British Columbia rivers to spawn. So obviously that benefits, you know, Alaska, cause those fish have got to spawn and make more fish and go back and, you know, the more the merrier for everybody. So, but, it, you know, as you know, we're seeing, Declines in salmon on uh, steelhead stocks uh, across almost all the major um, river systems in British Columbia, whether they're South Pacific or the or they're going uh, the North Way. And um, Canada has curtailed and reduced and cut back on commercial fisheries, and and uh, you know they're saying the Alaskans haven't. Yeah, the so coalition not- says that. Commercial fishing was nearly non-existent in BC last summer. Alaskan fleets just across the border logged over 3,000 boat days and harvested over 650,000 um, Canada-bound sockeye. Yeah, so they're just being irresponsible in, in how they're managing it. Yeah, I know that that was always a hot topic when I lived up there. The fishermen, I didn't, I didn't, uh, I didn't salmon fish, so I worked... Uh, I worked on the much nastier stuff. I did some crabbing and halibut fishing and worked on a trawler. So I've seen some pretty gross stuff, but. Um, yeah, I'm not, I'm not super familiar with like the, the, um, the, the treaty. Mm-hmm. So how this actually, you know, lines up with the treaty to say, look, you're, 
you know, you are in contravention in our opinion of article number, like, like whatever. Yeah. I, I haven't, I haven't dug to that level. Mm -hmm. um, these folks have um, Greg Taylor from Watershed Watch Salmon Society and Mr. McDuffie from the Rainclose Conservation Foundation were kind of like the key, the key gatekeepers on, you know, this compiling this information. They, you know, they would, they would have a better idea of how this lines up to the, um, uh, to, to the treaty, but everything I've read on it, um, you know, reporting out on this is, seems to point to the fact that it's not in keeping with the salmon treaty yeah, with the yeah. U.S. So. To, to your knowledge, do the B.C. government and the Alaska officials, do they work in coordination on the, the, the distribution of the salmon? So this is, this is federal. So, okay. so, so anything gotcha. would be federal. The federal government uh, dfo yep yeah okay. yep so they would they would be need they would need to be engaging with um the united states or the state of alaska on the pacific salmon treaty which apparently it was uh at the time this was all coming out the the countries were actually meeting um about the pacific salmon treaty so oh yeah yeah pretty interesting stuff like i said i just i figured i'd, I'd touching that i seen you you're hitting it there on your on your story yeah so the reason the reason i kind of like had that in the story feed there on the weekend was um meat eater had published an article uh one of their staff writers from alaska wrote an article that uh basically was blaming british columbia for the decline of salmon oh. stocks in alberta because of our mining industry so in northeast northwestern british columbia on the taku river there's an abandoned mine called the tulsaqua mine and it was a metal mine that was not closed properly uh, the company i th think it was like chief chief metals or chieftain metals or, or something like that went bankrupt and they couldn't complete their closure and uh, so this mine is uh, what's referred to as an acid generating mine. So when they get in, you dig the ore body out, uh, the, the minerals and the rock and stuff mix with air and bacteria, and it becomes acid. The rainwater that washes off of this exposed rock has incredibly low pH. And when that water works its way through the rocks, the, the low pH, the acid water, dissolves heavy metals out of the rock so your zincs and cadmiums and leads and uh, these sorts of things which are really bad for living organisms and then that drains into the water systems and you can cause pollution which can be detrimental right. to the aquatic environment so so that's going on with the tulsaqua mine and they basically like blamed like this abandoned mine and that nothing's being being done with it there is stuff being done with it um, and, and I was, I was kind of like, hold the phone here a little bit. It's like, there is stuff going on with, um, efforts to impose enforcement on the company that now owns the mine property. There's work being done. Um, they're trying to commission a water treatment right. plant. There's a collaborative effort between British Columbia and the state of Alaska, monitoring fish and metal toxicity and, uh, all this sort of stuff. And I don't think it's quite as bad. Like the mine is not that bad that it's, it's causing this wholesale like 
you know, death and destruction on millions of salmon that are trying to get past it up to their spawning grounds. But that was kind of what you got from the article. And I'm like, okay, well, let's talk about your your commercial fishing industry. (laughs) And so I laid out all these reports and stories that are like, hey, Uh, these fishing stocks are collapsing because they spawn in British Columbia. We've parked and cut back on our commercial fishing industry because these stocks are so low from a conservation perspective, yet you're fishing the hell out of them in Southeast Alaska. So I was kind of like, why didn't we talk about that? Right. You know, in, in the story. So uh that was easier. a little, yeah, was a little frustrated so <laughs> yeah easier to well for their yeah easier for for them i guess they say well we'll just point our fingers at this and uh, yeah i mean i i heard from them probably within the hour of that oh did you around. oh good yeah oh good yeah. awesome good, good so and and it, it was positive you know oh, so yeah. so curtis and i uh helped another staff writer media to write an article on the moose issue up north yeah um so you know we start have started to develop a relationship with right. with a uh, writer, writer there and um sort of like you know we heard heard back from mediator and kind of said like okay like we get it like it's it's uh um we're only looking at this from one perspective right which well, is like good the alaskan awesome. perspective and it's like and and it was my point right it's like like the decline of salmon stocks is like from a conservation perspective, like it's cumulative impacts. It's like yeah. what we've been talking about with the yeah. Yehi decision. It's a whole bunch of stuff. It's like, it's the plastics that are going in the ocean. It's the logging in the headwaters that are mm-hmm. silting and, and losing spawning habitat. It's, it's uh, dams and bridges and yeah. pollution. And we play a part in that with oh. our fish farms in the yeah. ocean, you know, and, and the lice and, so everybody has a role to play here and i'm kind of like let's all recognize that it's cumulative impacts we can all play a role and again let's let's have the conversations that are bringing people together not dividing people and i just kind of saw this as a as a dividing narrative southeast alaska against british columbia kind of thing so yeah well i kind of like how you uh you know, you're, like you said, you're, you're building, it seems like you've built a bit of a relationship with them, which is great because in the future, you know, if there's an article that's coming out or an issue that's coming out, you know, they might actually just give you a shout and be like, Hey, what's your take on this now? now that you yeah. And that's exactly what out. happened on the, on the moose thing. Yeah, that's good. <clears throat> you know, so it was like, Hey, can we get together and like, we need to figure out what this is. Cause we want to want to write a story on it. And it's like, that's absolutely fantastic yeah, <clears throat> because it's like first and foremost it's like talk to somebody that's there you know yeah. in 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 the know not that i'm the only one that, that i could have like i said right off the bat i said everything i know about what's up north it's like <clears throat> you can get out of jesse zeman's head you yeah. know it's kind of like so but anyways like that, that that's where the connection was made and and you know whatever but it was like yeah a lot of information comes comes from jesse but but making that local contact <clears throat> to get the local story and it, and it was even like it's even down to like okay in british columbia we refer to them as first nations or indigenous peoples in the united states it's absolutely respectful to refer to them as tribes right right because they have you know the yeah. um you know the 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 whatever you know, um, Sunohami tribe or the, mm-hmm. or the, or, you know, yeah. you know, all the, all the various 
tribes, but it's like the language is different. Yeah. So just just writing and making sure that you get that right is like just a you know a little thing. Yeah. It's like yeah. you know British Columbia government, not the federal, not the Canadian government. Like so so you know, and that's why I don't dive into things in other countries is because it's like you know I have no freaking idea. Yeah. Well, I mean, absolutely. Yeah. I don't. So I love that. I love that they're starting to take an interest and that they're reaching out to to get informed um before the articles are are written because the, the the alaska one wasn't i wish it, it would have but um maybe that'll be different different next yeah, time because moving um, forward I, for sure i love the international coverage coverage because i think it puts more pressure politically mm-hmm. in this country and it gives us a bigger voice when outside entities are covering the story and getting involved and when people from other countries are phoning our elected officials saying, Hey, we kind of don't like what you're doing to your resident hunters up there. It's like, damn right. So I'm going to, you know, anybody that wants my time, I'll, I'll, uh, I'll help them oh, yeah. out with the story. So, yeah, no, it's pretty positive when you get those, when, when you get our neighbors, there involved too. It's like, fuck yeah. Cool. Good job, boys. We're going to work together. No, I love it. Yeah. That's good. I have always held um, the American way of managing wildlife, the money they pour into research, and the will of both their political systems and their people to stand up and defend the tradition and heritage of hunting. Yeah. yeah. Like so, they yeah. are so passionate about wildlife management, wildlife science, research, hunting, and protecting hunting. It, it's absolutely inspirational on all fronts you know how how much they're involved and i have always wanted more of that to catch on you know here in canada because uh, you know here in canada you know there'll be an issue come up about you know something to do with hunting let's just bring up the grizzly bear hunt or whatever yep. or this moose thing or whatever yep. everybody gets all like up in arms about mm-hmm. it and it, but it's like do something about it take yeah. some actual actions call your mlas and then you kind of get the uh um ah well it's not i tried that one time and they don't listen and there's no point they're just going to do what they want to do and all of a sudden it's like it's just sort of like Bleh. yeah you know yeah. Oh. but but you see things in the states and it's like holy hell they get fired up and it's like they don't give up no they don't you know? yeah and that's, oh, that's yeah. yeah they're going to take our guns away in canada oh, damn government and screw them or whatever and down <laughs> yeah. in the states it's like they got armed militias to say no you're not touching come get them. our constitutional right to own these things right and so yeah. yeah i just i've always wished that we had a little bit more of that yeah it, drive it, up here it'd be nice i don't know if, if that goes back to a numbers thing or just i don't know what it is maybe too much apathy up here but yeah i mean like, it, it you're probably right on that there are some incredibly passionate overworked volunteers in fish wildlife and habitat in this province and in this country that are just always out there advocating and rallying and you know trying to trying to do stuff trying to get people fired up trying to get the momentum and, and a movement and stuff and and maybe it is a proportional thing like Mm. you know but when you have one percent of your hunting community is willing to just continually be hammering on issues in british columbia that's like a few hundred people when it's in the state of texas it's like it's a million people that are like really vocal about it right and that's one percent of their hunting population whatever and and so yeah hopefully well i mean hopefully 
you know, one thing that this is, you know, good or bad, the outcome of it. I mean, hopefully it, it just, it, it, hopefully we can keep as hunters, we can keep this momentum going and, and we just, you know, we start working proactively rather than just having a reaction to something that's already, that's already, you know, it, it seems like when something comes out for proposal, the decision's already made and it's like, okay, this is, you know, we're just going to, we're just putting this out here just to, just to appease yeah. you guys. So, well, I think that's part of the frustration with the seven B moose caribou proposal, right? is I think people are thinking that like, like the decision has been made and it's just now coming out for public comment. Everybody in this province knows that we're on a two-year hunting regulation cycle and we're actually past the deadline of like getting your changes in for the next two years because the hunting regulations need, like the order and council needs to be um, signed off by Lieutenant Governor then the hunting regulations have to get drafted off the hunting regulation change, the OIC, and then they got to get out into people's hands because hunting season starts in Northern British Columbia on the 1st of August in some places. Yep. And so like it, we're really getting down to the wire. And I think people know that they, yeah. they know we are past the, the midnight due date on, on what should have been cut off that goes like in a year from now we'll start talking about that for two years down the road and so that i think that made people feel like well they're trying to jam this in at the last second because they have already decided yes you know they're gonna they're gonna yeah. do this regardless but we've got to go through this motion and you know and and uh ask for public comment and stuff so i i think that added to the to the to the frustration and the anxiety of everybody around this thing because there was this this thing of like they knew the time pressure people yeah. in the province knew the time pressure and i think you're exactly right i think people are like you know they're they got loud because they think the decision had already been made and so yeah yeah, yeah it's tricky i mean it's uh, i guess time will tell i guess unfortunately uh i mean there's obviously some people who know but we're not one of them so um well i can honestly say the amount of from what I've heard, the amount of MLA involvement and, and they, you know, that they've heard like individual ministers in the North have got like upwards of like a thousand phone yeah. calls and emails and stuff from, you know, on this. So like, there's nobody in the province elected officials that aren't on top of this. Yeah. And if they care and they're representing their constituents, they're passing that message on to the minister. Right. So that's a big deal. Like that, that takes serious consideration you know at a at a cabinet level to say you know yeah well even when we, even when an opposing change. yeah even when an opposing party puts out uh you know they're hosting a webinar on wednesday regarding these regulation changes um i don't know if you've seen that but yeah on the 30th yeah so that'll be interesting but uh we've been chatting here for a bit mark so but i want to talk about uh your turkey course Oh yeah. Uh, yeah. Yeah. I know, I know they're gonna see this coming yeah. up. Yeah. Do you see the smile <laughs> on Pete's face over there as soon as I said that? <laughs> um, you know, I, I, I'd love to keep this conversation going and, but I mean, uh, we got to have some fun stuff here. So maybe you can Absolutely. just tell me, tell me a bit about, about that exactly, you know, how long it's been going on and what it is and, and guys that sign up for it, what they can kind of expect out of it. So before COVID I 
was just getting myself established to do some courses like, like, uh, um, face to face on, um, sort of an introduction to wild turkey hunting in British Columbia. And I delivered one course in Cranbrook and then was getting ready to go over to Kelowna and do one and down to the coast kind of partnered with uh, Dylan from eat wild. And yeah. he reached out and like that, that one was like, that was super popular down there. It was going to be kind of a sold out show sort of thing. And then COVID hit and the airline travel thing. And so like all the group meetings were canceled. And um, so they, they fell off the wayside. So that winter, I decided to just spend the winter and put together a online course. Mm-hmm. And it's all video based, narrated pictures, video, bit of film and whatnot. And I created this um pretty comprehensive course i think it, it ended up being way bigger than i than i thought it would be um because i spent the better part of the winter uh working on it so it's it's an online course you can sign up um for a fee and then you can work at your own pace through it like any <clears throat> any online learning platform you know you can yeah. skip to the chapters you know you do do whatever and come back and back and forth and uh, what not work at your own pace or whatever. So it's like, I cover, I basically, what I said is, uh, cause I I've been hunting wild turkeys here in the East Kootenays for like 20 years now. And it's like, it's, it's my thing. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, and I basically have taken, cause I started out from ground zero, like, mm-hmm. like knowing absolutely nothing. To, to, to where I am now. And so I've taken all of that for 20 years, not to say like, I'm the expert, I'm just saying, this is what I've learned. And this yeah. is what works for me. And I've completely dumped all of that into this course, absolutely everything I know. The only thing I haven't done is put an X on a map. <laughs> but if you're really good at following what I do and teaching you how to uh, e-scout areas, identify areas, pre-season scout them and get yourself set up in the right locations at the right time of the day when hunting season's on, there's a possibility we'll bump into each other. Oh yeah. Yeah. I thought you were going to say for an extra hundred dollar fee, I'll give you the X. No. I was going to ask you how much it was. I'll, I'll, no. you know, I'll, I'll get in the truck and I'll head down right now and have a <laughs> <to> in person. <laughs> so yeah, so that's, that's, that's the course. And, um, I, I think it's probably unique, you know, in North America. Um, it, it is specific to British Columbia because it's, it's British Columbia train, our habitat types, whatever. It's the Merriam subspecies, their behaviors, what they like to do, where they're going to be, their feeding patterns, all this kind of stuff. It's like, I don't know about turkeys in the Eastern States and yeah. Well, yeah. I think they're a lot different too. Like I, I don't, I think there's a big difference. I mean, I haven't, I've only hunted the Miriams here and I started out, I'm a Northerner. I came down here mm-hmm. and was hunting for a little bit. Um, and then I was like, oh man, I'm going to go try. I started watching Turkey shows on TV. Geez, and I was like, geez, your guys gross are really big. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. So then I was like, man, I'm going to go give turkeys a roll. And everyone's like, you're going to do what? And then like, I hunted that first year, I hunted almost every day of the, spring turkey season i didn't miss a day like i had to go to work i'd get up at 2 a.m yeah, yeah drive yeah. to a turkey spot 
hope for a gobble, be running around there with my head cut off. Did that all the first year, didn't get nothing. The second year, it took me half a year. I finally got one. And then it's been, I mean, obviously every year has its own challenges. Uh, last spring, I was ready just to throw in the towel with Turkey Hunt. I was done. Like even going into the fall, I was done with Turkey Hunt. I was like, it's like, fuck this. It's going to be like my golf clubs. I'm done with it. Right. Like, but uh, yep. luckily yeah. in the fall, I stumbled, I like fortuitously stumbled into a, a flock and I got one. So I was like, you know what? Turkey Hunt's not that bad. <laughs> it's better. It's, it's funny because, yeah, I've had better to be lucky look- than good. Yeah. Oh, Absolutely. I'll take luck any day of the week, whatever brings the bird home. Yeah. I, I, I've had the same thing with people looking at me funny too. And I've gone out and it's just like, it's so cool to be sitting there in the dark, you know, waiting for daybreak and that kind of stuff. Yep. And you hear that gobble. And oh I tell God. you, there's nothing that gets the heart pumping. Oh, it's amazing. You yeah. can't do anything yet. You're just trying to locate it and be like, okay, what am I going to do now? Yeah. And it's so exhilarating. And then, yeah. If you actually get one in the right mood, you know, can work them up. Just like I look at it, just like elk hunting, especially if it, you're it, it is, it is pretty, it is pretty similar. So if it's like if you're a good elk hunter, you can tra- transfer the tactics, and um, and you will see a lot of very similar behaviors of the toms. Oh, okay. Um, so, and as one of the things I do in the course, like one of the sections is I'll tell you about all these different ways in my experience that a tom turkey will react to your calls, like how it's going to come into you. Um, and it, like I give them all names. There's like, there's the one that I call like the straight liner. So it's like, if you're in the dark and a tom gobbles in a tree and you hand call and he gobbles back, he knows you're there. There are the toms that when it's light enough and they fly down, they straight line right to you yep. as fast as they can go. They're coming at you and they're just all of a sudden like wham there they are and they're looking around like where's where's this hen right it's one of the reasons i say it's like don't call until you're set up ready everything on the ground and your guns on your knee because if it's one of those ones it's going to be standing there looking at you before you're like well maybe i should worship i should under that holy shit there it is right there i learned that the hard way uh there's the other ones that'll like uh the dawdler He'll fly down out of the tree in the morning. Gobble, 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 Hand call, gobble, 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 gobble. And then you're like, any second now you expect to see this red head. And it's like 45 minutes later, it's like, where the fuck is he? He's like, gobble, gobble, oh, he's still over there. And it's like, what the hell? And it's like, that's the Tom that's like, yeah, um, I'm, I'm headed your way, but I'm freaking hungry. So I'm going to eat and there's like things catch my attention. It's like, oh, there's a bug and there's a butterfly and there's some good grass and all this kind of stuff. And it takes them an hour to cover, you know, like 50, 60 yards to get to you. So I I show all that stuff so that you you can hopefully be more successful. Um, There's one called the fader, which comes out of the tree gobbling. You sure he's going to come right to you. And then, and all of a sudden it's like, I think he's, farther away than he was 10 minutes ago right he just he just slowly moves away and it's like the one i run into the most that's the fader i I see that guy every year that guy that's because he is he is roosted with hens Uh, yeah gotcha and the hens come down and they hear the other hen over there squawking and sometimes a hen will come and check you out 99 percent of the time they're like we're going the other way and that Tom will not leave 
live birds in front of him to go to a sound. Right. He right. gobbles his head off because he's excited, yeah. but he just gets farther and farther away. But yeah, then actually. I actually lay out a strategy of how to hunt that bird over the course oh, okay. of the, the morning. Awesome. I'm definitely so, going to have to check that out. It's, it, so yeah, it's, uh, it, it, it's all there, like I said, and I've, I've dumped absolutely everything, you know, that I've learned all, over the years into it. And like, you know, I think if you were in Idaho or even in Montana or something like that, or in Alberta, if you had one of the permits, this is going to help you because geographically, mm -hmm. the lay of the land, kind of what the birds do and the habitat types are going to be in, they're going to be like pretty, yeah. pretty useful information. So, well, that's pretty cool. Cause I've like, you know, down in the States, they have you know, they have like tree line pursuit and they have, you know, uh, Corey Jacobson's got his elk 101, but I've never seen one for Turkey. So I even like, here. I yeah. even go like right back. If you're interested in this kind of stuff, cause I am like, I am so interested and so passionate about wild turkeys and wild turkey hunting. Like I've run these things right to ground. It's like, where did they come from? Right. And I'm talking about the Bering Land Bridge and the, the, the ancestral peafowl that came over the Bering Land Bridge and the evolution and where the fossils have been found and how old this bird is on the North American continent, um, where they were um, post-glaciation, where they were at the time of European contact, um, wow. all the different subspecies, the um, the Mayans had actually like domesticated a wild turkey. Um, called I think it was the Mexican wild turkey um, which is the Cortez actually took it back to Europe and then the European pilgrims actually brought it back to the east east coast of the states the domestic turkey the domestic turkey the Mayans created went extinct but every single domestic turkey in the world has DNA from that domesticated bird in Central America uh. Cool. But none cool. of the wild turkey subspecies do. Oh, so weird. they originally thought the Miriams, which was the South Rockies bird where the Miriams came from, was the 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 Mexican wild turkey that was domesticated went wild. But through DNA, they went no no the the domesticated one actually did go extinct. And so the the five subspecies that we have um are actually true wild genetic birds so if you're wow, interested in that kind of stuff like yeah. i'll take you right back so when you're done it's like you are going to have like a phd in wild turkeys and for me that stuff i find one i just love the biology and natural history of everything that's out there but it's some way shape and form sometimes that comes back to help me in hunting and so i just i'll research stuff to the yeah. ends of the earth so yeah that's cool that's awesome. Hey, how far do you think, or how how high in BC do you know of that that the turkeys are found? Yeah, we were just talking about this. Yeah. Hey, so I've heard stories of them being sighted up around Dawson Creek area. No freaking way. Wow. So I would never have guessed that. So if you think about it, it's just like when you get into the Northeast, like the Alberta plateau just comes out of like, yeah. you know, North of Edmonton just comes right over to the Rockies. So whether you're in Northeastern BC or whether you're in Northwestern Alberta, it's kind of like, it's the same. It's the Alberta plateau, boreal forest, farm country. Uh, that sort of thing. So I have, I have a friend that's in Fort St. John and he said he's heard stories of people seeing them around there. I have never heard anything since whether they've got um, like they're getting established there uh, or not, but I, 
would believe that the most northerly extent is probably the ones that are just kind of up around south of the golden area wow yeah you know the briscoe yeah. edgewater kind of like up in up in that part of the world and if Fort. if they if they are that's the most northerly extent latitude wise of wild turkey distribution on the north american continent in this province. those ones there are getting absolutely hammered on the highways um, a lot of them crossing back and forth on a lot of the farmers' fields and stuff with the Trans Canada reroute. And it's, yeah, uh, I go out turkey hunting every morning, and you just see feathers, and you're just like, no, 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 not another mm. one, and another one. Right? Yeah, that was happening kind of around uh, just outside of Kimberley a few years ago, and they oh, put really? up turkey turkey crossing signs or whatever. But oh, yeah. I haven't even um, noticed those. Their population there. is just is doing so well here. Like it's. It's kind of like seeing here in the Kootenays, it's kind of like seeing a white-tailed deer that's been hit on the highway or a couple of them go, oh my God, the population's going to be devastated. And it's like, oh my God, there's yeah. like, they're breeding, spitting out as fast as they, you know, they can, they can get them. Yeah, that's, them, about, so. that's the same thing here and over here in the Okanagan. There's like birds everywhere. We've had them in residential areas, wild turkeys flocking around. So um, yeah. yeah, yeah. I mean, it's part, it's one of the things that, frustrates me here in British Columbia is, is um, they have a bad reputation in the wildlife management and biology field because they're not a native bird in British Columbia. So <clears throat> nobody wants to manage them. Nobody wants to touch them. Um, their populations are doing well. They're starting to become like the deer there's flocks that are like, Hey, life is pretty good living in these communities. We don't ever yeah. have to leave a lot of conflict, shitting on my car, yeah. on my deck, scaring my dog, you know, all this kind of stuff. So the wildlife managers are being bombarded with these and the COS is being bombarded with these come deal with these turkeys kind of thing. And they're like, no, we're not going to come deal with them, you know, and the COS is like, we are not going to come and like trap turkeys. <laughs> it's like, <laughs> you know, bears, yes, turkeys, no. Yeah. Well, it's um, funny too, because I hear a little bit, you know, like they'll, they'll increase, you know, like the turkey harvest a little bit. They'll add the extra season at the end of the year and all this kind of stuff. And you're like, yeah, that's great. Fine. Dandy has got nothing to do. That's not going to affect a single bird. And no, any of these towns or districts. No, it, it, it's not. And, and I mean, I'm okay with a little bit of that, you know, sort of, and, and I helped set up the, the December LEH season because it was, it was kind of meant to deal with the conflicting landowners yeah. to say like, look, there are some people out there with limited entry permits to come in in the wintertime when they're a problem, let them on your land. Otherwise, stop phoning us and bitching about it because, you know, and, and it was, it was a little bit of a, a way of sort of, you know, placating the complaints to say, well, then just open your land up and let, let these permit holders, you know, come in and, and hunt them or whatever. All that really does from the literature I've read is it can get the turkey flocks to go back to a bit more of a natural foraging pattern, pattern across the landscape, rather than just parking it on, on uh, private property. They love being around cattle and farm operations in the winter time because the cows are always yep. keeping the ground and the sod turned up and it's fresh and it's warm and there's things to eat bugs and seeds and and whatever and they'll just live right there farmers will start like feeding grain feeding and stuff 
you know, in the troughs and stuff and, you know, in the middle of the winter time and the turkeys are in there. And, and so that's where a lot of the conflict is here in the East Goonies is, um, is with the ag operations. And it, it's unfortunately, they developed a bad reputation because of that. And it's like, it's sort of like the, you know, like, let's just increase hunting opportunity, like to get rid of the turkeys. And it's like, hey, we finally have a huntable species. Yeah. It's got a population that's actually trending up. And and the ethos within wildlife management is, is like, well, let's eradicate them. God, right. <laughs> Come on. Like, it's like, <laughs> we're going to be here. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Work with us. So, um, yeah, it's one of the things I've been pushing for, for quite a while and through the BC wildlife federation is to get wild Turkey onto a tag. Yes. Yes. I agree too. And, and that was one thing I, when I talked to the Canadian wild Turkey federation, that was one of the things that their BC, uh, representative was pushing for is to get them put on yeah a tag system they they were pushing for that back when the national wild turkey federation had a chapter here in cranbrook called the east kootenai strutters that was oh, part yeah. of that they were pushing because if i remember right from the nwtf british columbia is the only jurisdiction in north america that does not have a tag yeah for wild turkeys and the nwtf said we're here to help with wild turkey management contribute to habitat projects the, the chapter that's raising funds through the banquets and stuff here in British Columbia, that's a British Columbia account money. It will not go back to the States. We're here to help, but it's like, we need you based on our policy to have recognized the wild turkey as a game species that has a tag. Right. And at that time, there was a bird biologist in Victoria, avian biologist, the provincial bird biologist that hated wild turkeys it, <laughs> and, and it was like we kind of bumped heads a little bit oh, here yeah. and there it's like you know it's like oh they like they wreak havoc on the gross populations and it's like no they don't here's all the scientific literature from the states they studied it to death they don't um they eat endangered amphibians and stuff no they don't they eat seeds and spiders. It's like they don't eat like snakes and lizards and frogs. And, yeah. you know, and it was just like all this, this stuff they were putting out to give turkeys a bad rap is kind of like stuck. And it's just like, yeah. I don't like their the attitude towards these as a game species in the province. Yeah. So hopefully that comes because that will eliminate. We bumped into last year when we we're hunting, we bumped into a lot of guys from Alberta that had come over without um because they just just falls under the small small uh upland game and, bird that's yeah, all they have to do is buy a non-resident hunting license and an upland game bird right yeah so but, we... but here's here's the deal actually when a non-resident buys their hunting license they have a fee that goes to the hctf same as us when we buy yeah. the hunting license they have to buy the upland game bird license as a non-resident and there is a surcharge, habitat surcharge on that, that they pay. Right. So they actually pay more into conservation to come here and hunt the wild turkey than we do as residents because mm -hmm. we don't have a tag. We just have to buy a hunting license. Yeah. How do you feel about, um, I know this has been brought up before by a couple of people, if we had to pay more for our tags? Everybody that I know seems to support the idea of um, increasing or paying more for tags and licenses mm -hmm. if all that money were to go yes. to I, habitat. Yeah, I agree. Okay. Yeah, I, I was. In, that's um, what my answer is to. Amen. I don't mind paying more. I just need to know that that money is going directly 
to this resource. It's not going to fixing a pothole yeah. somewhere else. Yeah. It doesn't and like see, it. I've been I've been pushing for the tag, the species tag on wild turkey. Like even though the entire price of the tag wouldn't go into HCTF, the surcharge will. Right. And it's a little bit more than what mm -hmm. turkey hunters are contributing right now. Right, right. So if it's going to be like whatever, seven bucks or three bucks or whatever off the tag is the HCTF charge, it's more than what yep. is coming gotcha. off of hunting wild turkeys as it is right now. So it's like, let's just do that. And then one day, if all of that is rolled into dedicated uh, funding for, for fish and wildlife, then turkeys are right up there paying a little bit more of the share as well. So, but there's very strong opposition uh, within government for a tag. Oh, really? Yep. <laughs> because it's an, it's a non, non-native. I've heard every excuse that you can think of to say it costs too much money to print a tag. Um, how can we have a tag on a species that's not native. And I'm like, well, what about the bison up north? Well, they, they were historically native to the area. Yes, the Athabascan subspecies right. bison wasn't. The ones that are up there at Pink Mountain are domesticated hybrids that have gone feral. Yeah. And it's the most sought after LEH tag in the province of BC yeah. is for those bison hunts. And you charge a lot of money for them. So it's like rainbow trout in the Kootenai yeah. watershed where I am are non-native fish. Yeah, yeah. Like it's like pheasants in the Okanagan, like go on and on. Right. So yeah, it's like, yeah. it's like, well, that, that one does, that argument doesn't, doesn't hold water. And then there was a controversial thing, in my opinion, happened a couple regulation cycles ago. We were pushing for this tag for the wild turkeys for region eight and region four. And then some of the hunting groups on Vancouver Island said, oh, we're going to put in a proposal we hate these wild turkeys on Vancouver Island. So we want to have a no close season, no bag limit on them. Let's get rid of them off the island. And they implemented it. Wow. It's like, what? And yeah. um, so anyways, that was then that was used against oh, us yeah, yeah. saying, well, how can region eight and region four have a tag? And on Vancouver Island, they're no fill tag. your boots yeah. 12 months of the year on them. And I'm like, well, then classify the ones on Vancouver Island as feral domestic turkeys, just like the pigs. Right. They're escaped. Then no close season, no bag limit. Yeah. Region four and region eight has the Miriam subspecies of the North American wild turkey. Put a tag on the wild turkey. Yeah. Yeah. I'd like to see a tag on them. Definitely. I'm all yeah. for it. I'm all for it. If I Let's get use the call map, center. Though. Let's howl for wildlife. <laughs> yeah, Everybody in North America to phone your MLAs <laughs> in British Columbia and said, those guys need a species tag on wild turkey. <laughs> yeah, I'll send John a text right now and tell him to get on it. Yeah. Get on it, yep. Yeah. So one yeah. more question regarding turkeys. Your favorite turkey call? My favorite turkey call is, I. so it's changed. I'll tell the story. I've used a box call. I have a custom-made box call from Dan's custom calls out of Spokane, Washington. Beautiful. Mm -hmm. It's a long box. Uh, I like that. And I use a mouth read. Mm -hmm. So the box calls I use for uh, locating right. distance. And then when it's on, then I go to a mouth read because then I'm not moving anything and I've got both hands on a firearm there you go and i can just yeah. if i have to do a little peep here here and there 
And then locator calls, uh, crow call. I probably blow the crow call more than I blow the turkey call because I'm like you, I'm traveling the landscape trying to find where they are. And I'm just doing that by shot gobbling. And I do some owl hooting in the dark. They don't really have to. Anything will get them to gobble. Yeah. Yeah. Seems like when they're, if they're going to gobble, they'll, you could do anything. Yeah, pretty uh, much. Yeah. It, it just depends on how, how kind of like, you know, um, refined you want to be. Right. It's like right. an owl hoots at night and a crow yeah. calls during the day. And it's sort of like, or you're just going to be like, Gah! yeah. <laughs> <laughs> what about I I, one quick question for you, actually, that I just thought of. Have but you noticed here's the, it, here's the second part oh, of this. Okay, yeah. I'll just finish this off. I made turkey wing bone calls this winter oh, really? from the wing bones from the tom I got last spring. And I'm going to exclusively use those this year. My goal is to harvest the tom that I brought in with the turkey, handmade turkey wing bone calls. Oh, that'd be badass. And no camel this year. No camel. I am, I am no longer. You don't, camel. you're not a, are you a hex guy? I have uh, no more camel in my hanging on the rack over there oh, i've yeah. gone back to traditional wool pants and yep. shirt and stuff and gotcha plaid yeah and whatnot I, so i'm not a big camel guy either and i a wool sweater kind of i mean i i will say i do believe it's can be very valuable for wild turkeys because it's close you're at eye level with them and they can see color yeah and they have incredibly good eyesight oh amazing so absolutely Full camo, cover your face up, like everything, anything that shines. I've run that way for the longest time. And I've just decided I want to kind of go back a little bit more traditional. And if I'm sitting at the base of a big fir tree or a big ponderosa pine tree, and I got some brown pants on and an olive green shirt and a scarf wrapped, green scarf wrapped around my face and a little green toque or whatever, yeah, yeah. brown toque, it's like I'm just going to look like a lump on the ground. And I think I can fool a turkey. Yeah, well, it seems like I'm not the only one excited to, uh, for the 15th throw around. Mm. One quick, quick, one more quick question regarding turkeys, yep. and then we'll wrap it up. Have you noticed any difference in early springs regarding rut sta- rut timing? The strut. The rut. Um, the rut. The rut. Yeah, it's I called the find st- up here. In it's called oh, the strut. It, called, it is called the strut. Okay. It's called the strut. Yeah. Oh, gotcha. Um, in the timing, no. Yeah. No. Okay. No. So, so, but there is things that affect gobbling activity, the same as affects elk bugling activity. Right. So their testosterone levels are influenced by the, the changing daylight hours, same as every other wildlife. Mm-hmm. So they start to see peak, um, testosterone levels in the male and estrogens in the female starts climbing because of the changing daylight in February. And so you'll see gobbling activity start ramping up in late February, March, some of the most absolutely chaotic gobbling and breeding activity is going on in March, like, like chaos, you will not see in the hunting season, 50, 60 turkeys, because they're still in the big winter flocks. They start fragmenting now into little, little bunches, like they're pushing away uh, three, fours and fives and stuff and twos and you know, and, and whatnot, but in March, when they're still kind of in those big winter flocks and they are into this, into the strut and there's some peak gobbling activity, man, like you actually can fear for your life out there. There's like oh. 
30 toms and jakes and they're calling and they're running around and it's just like it's it's chaos um but then like what happens is is you you get peaks in gobbling activity and then it drops off and it might be quiet for a few days and then it'll peak again right and then it drops off and then yeah. basically like from the peak the peak breeding and stuff is all happening in march right and right. then it starts to slowly diminish out until even like close to the beginning of, um, you know, into May, right. May and even sometimes potentially early June. Right. So various things will affect testosterone levels. So um, toms don't like to gobble when it's windy. Right. So if you got windy days, blustery kind of days, a, a front moving in gobbling activity they're affected by barometric pressure gotcha, gotcha. Um, they're affected by temperature um, mm, so okay. so they have things going on you know in their life or testosterone peaks and then it's down and it's the same if you've you've hunted elk it's like it's either like they're really quiet and they'll bugle yeah. and then once and then that's the last you'll ever hear of them and then like two days later it's like this thing's going to come and try to gore me to death, right? Like, yeah, holy, yeah. what the hell happened? And that's just 24, yeah. 48 hours, a bit more testosterone. And the turkeys well, are exactly the same way. So, yeah, yeah. Cause I, I've noticed that is if it's on certain years when there's, if there's early snow melt, seems like they're more active really early when it opens than if it's a late, then they're, they sometimes, so I think a little longer. In my experience, what that is, is like, cause they, they have to conduct their breeding at the same time. And that's why it's daylight controlled, right? Cause the timing of right. the, of the eggs, the hen needs time. She, she can have like 10, 14 eggs and she lays like one a day. And then she, she doesn't start incubating till the last one's laid and then incubates. And then they all hatch within a few hours of each other. So when you start pushing that in out into the summer, and then the amount of time that the poults need to like eat and grow and be of a certain size for next winter, it's no different than deer elk. That mm -hmm. has to happen like clockwork, regardless of the weather. But what my experience is, is just depending on the snow and the snow loads and areas, Miriam turkeys are not overly um, loyal to a piece of ground. Right. Gotcha. And in the spring, they do not like snow. They do not like cool areas, damp areas, draws where there's a little bit of snow sitting in the bottom. They go right out. They're looking for those warm aspects, warm ridges where your first green shoots are coming up. And in the afternoon, you got, you're starting to get insect activity now. That's where you find them. So if you're going into an area this year and the snow melt was like gone four weeks ago, yeah, it was starting to green up. Ah, they're here again, right on. It's going to be good hunting season. You go back in next year and springs, and this has happened to me. It's, it's like, it's two weeks behind mm -hmm. and it's like, there is no turkeys here. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Crazy. But I run into quite a bit. Three weeks yeah. later, you go back in there and go, oh, okay, now they're here. Right. Like it's, right. but, but so, so they, this, they're doing the Ouija board thing on the landscape. So if you, if you habitually go to an area and it's like, I found turkeys in here every year, right at the, early in April, um, you know, they're always here and then all of a sudden they're not there, then it's, they're probably not there because like the food source isn't there. It's right. just, it hasn't right. greened up. It's just, so yeah. you need to go find those spots, mm. start covering the landscape and you'll find them somewhere. 
Cool. Cool. I've got one quick question. Where can we find you on this course that you're putting on? So if you go to the hunterconservationist.com website and I'm just opening it up right here on the top, very top margin, uh, it says podcast, there's tabs, podcast, conservation, hunt, fish, cooking, and master classes. Nice. Okay. I'll put those up in the show notes. Good call. So master class takes you right there to take this course, get started, Perfect. purchase. Where you go. Awesome. Yeah. I need to learn some of this stuff that I can come hate to tell you, but I'm starting to head your way. Cause there's like you say, I'm at the Northern tip here and I just really want to get one with my bow. So uh, okay. The more the south, the more south I go from where I am, it gets a little bit better. So, but I need to learn yep. to locate them too. So, yeah. And man, it's tough this year because it's like I filled my truck up today and it was like two hundred dollars, and it oh. didn't get it, didn't get all the way full. And it's like normally. So one of the lessons I learned was it was sort of like I used to like be out on the ground, like scouting, 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 scouting. Uh, and then I was scouting too early. I, I did one time start scouting for the turkeys in late February, followed them through March. Um, but that's hard because right just before hunting season, like I said, they start to, to break up right. and they're not in those areas because they've all broken apart. And there's like a Tom's taken like four or five hens and they've gone way the hell over there, across the highway and way over into those hills. And this group's gone way the hell over there. So it becomes a little bit more of a needle in a haystack. So I found if you scout too early and then leave it and you go back there at the beginning of the season, you're like, where the hell did they all go? Yeah. Um, then I've made the mistake of, of going each year. I go into an area just before the season. There's some gobbles. They're in here. That's all I need to know. I'm backing out. I'll come back in here and hunt. And then the next year rolls around. It's like, they're always in that same area. I'm not going to go in there at like three in the morning. I know they're going to be there. I go in there on opening day and I'm like, why the hell are there no turkeys in here? <laughs> I'm like, shit. And yeah. now I'm running all over the landscape going, where the hell are yeah. they? Right. Oh yeah. Um, so it, that's going to be a bit of a tough call this year because it's like, if I can find them right off the bat and go, yep, they're in the same old area, then good. If they're not, then I got to start going option B, C, D, E, E, all these other yeah. areas. I know I got to start hitting. And it's like, holy crap, I can't spend 200 bucks a day. Going no, our, uh, our contribution, places, so. yeah, our, ta our tax contribution to hunting and wildlife just went up a little bit there. Oh man. I'm even thinking I might have to just throw the, uh, the, the plane, the, I had a little platform that I put in the back of the crew cabin like don't drive back and forth. Am I just like stay out? Yeah. Yeah. No kidding. Cool. Um, well, thanks Mark. I really appreciate hey, hey. you popping on with us. Uh, I know we kind of fun. Uh, yeah, absolutely. You got anything uh, for Mark Pete? No, that's it. Uh, I'm going to be checking out your masterclass there. I, I love turkeys, but I got a lot to learn too. So. Yeah, oh yeah. You yeah. can see the look on Pete's face. It. He's loving it. Yeah. Yeah. Like, like I said, it's, uh, yeah. I, I won't do not profess to be like an expert turkey hunter. Um, but I've, I've just learned a lot over my lifetime. These things work. I try to be very principle based in you know, what I'm, what I, what I teach is like, here's principles because I know somebody has to be like, I have to make this fit where I happen to be. So for example, here's a principle. When I set up decoys, I always set up the decoys because I, I set it up in a way 
so that wherever the Tom is that's traveling towards, like, because he's called, he's going to come at the decoys either to my left or my right. Right. Gotcha. Okay. Yeah. yeah. So I, I, if you think of a line, like the letter T, yeah. like I'm at the, I sit at the base of the T, then right. the two tops of the T, he's either coming from the left or the right. Right. I gotcha. do not want that Turkey coming straight at me. Okay. Yeah. Because then he's looking straight at the decoys and there I am. Yeah. And there's a bigger Good chance sense. he's going to go, what the hell's that underneath the yeah, tree? Wait, wait right? a sec. Yeah. So, so that's a principle. I always try to set up in a way. So I sit and the turkey's coming at me perpendicular from left oh, to right. Cool. If I actually have the choice, I actually want them coming from the left. Cause if you okay. think about when you sit down and you're yeah. right-handed, Oh yeah. You right got position. more yeah. stable and you're, you got more, you can mm-hmm. swing your shotgun like 30 degrees left and right and still be on your knee. But if you're right-handed and you try to shoot to the right, you're now in this, like this awkward position and your elbows there yeah, and yeah. you're shaking and stuff. So it's like, I like to sit and have my Turkey come from the left. Yeah. Well, so that's a good I, tip. So those are some principles. So somebody can go, Oh, I get the principle. And then right. when you're out there going like, this is what I'm dealing with for the landscape, you apply the principle and then yeah, it'll gotcha. be more successful. Awesome. Cool, man. Cool, man. That's great. Thank okay, you. Mark. Uh, again, thanks a lot. And, uh, round table hunter conservationist uh, all that stuff i'll put it up in the show notes uh thanks again it's been a blast and we'll have to do this more often you betcha yeah it was pretty cool hit on yeah, all okay. the topics yeah great okay we'll talk to you later pete yeah have a good one I want to thank everyone again for tuning in to another episode of the Focus Hunting Podcast, which is coming at you as part of the Waypoint Outdoors Collective. This episode of the Focus Hunting Podcast is brought to you by Vortex Optics, the best in optics, period. Backroads Maps, never get lost with Backroads Maps. And AKU Boots, you owe it to your feet. A uh, quick shout out to Howl for Wildlife. If you guys are not familiar with Howl for Wildlife, make sure you head on over to howlforwildlife.org. Become a member. It doesn't cost you anything. They've got tons of great stuff going on, and uh, we're going to be working with them, getting some Canadian issues put on their uh, platform. Thanks again, everybody. Thanks again, everybody.